Listeners, welcome to the 98th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. We are in the midst of Anna Month. As usual, I have Brian with me. How are we doing today, Brian? Doing okay, Dan. Glad to be back. And once again, considering an animated feature film released by a studio other than Disney prior to the year 1990. That's right, uh, which was a Brian-selected theme month he he picked out those restrictions to push us a little bit out of our disney and modern animation comfort zone and speaking of out of comfort zones what i have selected today is an anime film and i have not watched or read or anything all that much about anime so this was a little out of my comfort zone too so i i picked a japanese animated i guess you'll call it a film it's uh, it was released as a feature film. It's actually collected from episodes of a 1979 TV series. And that is an adaptation of Anne of Green Gables. And the first six episodes were stitched together into a feature called Road to Green Gables that was edited in 1989 and released in 2010 as a sort of feature film edit of the beginning of this TV show and the first few chapters of that book. So, Brian... Yes. There's a lot of a lot of stuff to, to get through to, to talk about here today. What's your experience with Anne of Green Gables, the 1909 book by a Canadian author, even though it's Japanese animation, it's an adaptation of a Canadian novel by, I believe her name is Lucy Maud Montgomery. Well, I guess I would say that all of my experience comes from watching a handful of episodes of an adaptation that aired on PBS in 2001 as part of their bookworm bunch block, which was shows all based on books. And so they had like an updated Berenstein Bears and they had a, a one about a tiny boy called George Shrinks. And this was part of that block. And I guess it was made in Canada originally, which makes sense because that's where it's set. And so what I know of the characters comes from that show. But I watched it kind of all piecemeal and out of order, so I didn't have a great sense of the story. The theme song actually does a pretty good job of catching you up and explaining a bit of the lore. Oh, interesting. Uh, I saw you sent that to me, but I didn't get to listen to it yet, the, the theme song. So that's a live-action adaptation or an animated adaptation? That, too, is animated, but it's from post-1990. Gotcha. Would not have qualified on the Brian Annamonth rules. What about you? What was your previous exposure? Um, my wife's book club has a lot of dedicated fans. I, I think there is a certain type of girl or young woman who is attracted to the story um, because Anne, in some ways, doesn't quite fit in, but she's also very precocious and speaks her mind and is full of personality and also gets to live a quiet, slow-paced lifestyle out in pastoral Canada. So I think there are a lot of followers of this book, even though it's over 100 years old now. Do fans of the series call themselves fans, F-A-N-N-E? Oh, I like that. I was thinking something about Gables, like uh, Gablers or something. No, I, I like fan as fans with an E because she's Anne with an E. I, okay, fans with an E. That's what we will call ourselves if we're fans of Anne of Green Gables. 
what blew my mind a little bit is Green Gables is a real house. Like, a whole bunch of this story is based in reality. Yeah. Lucy Maud Montgomery, she uh, grew up it, where this is set, although the town, Avonlea, is fictional. Right. But this house is really on Prince Edward Island. Or Prince Edward Island, as they say in the anime. <laughs> Did you watch with um, dubs or subs? Yeah, we can talk about that. I watched with dubs. So um, I had seen a few episodes before, and I watched a few episodes this week, um, as well as the feature edit. And I don't, I think just because I watched the dub version first, uh, I also think the dub is pretty good. I like all the voice actors, especially Matthew. I feel like really captures a specific personality. Um, I, I like the dub. Also, it's set in Canada, so it just kind of feels natural that they speak English, you know. Uh, that's what it was written in. That's true. But I also know that that is like the the heathen approach to watching anything anime of, of doing the dub. I just like to read the subtitles so that I can pick up maybe a handful of words. So you, d you did the subs with the original Japanese audio. That's right. Okay. But before we dive into the, the film proper, I just want to talk a little bit about anime. So last time I, I picked an episode, it was uh, Prince Ahmed, which is the oldest surviving animated feature. And, and in that episode, I talked a little bit about the birth of animation. And uh, anime has never been more popular than it is today, internationally in the U.S. And so, you know, I thought it was worthwhile to try and learn a little bit about the history, a lot of which I'd read before, but... Um, again, not, not my comfort area, but here's kind of like the big picture that I know of, of the history of anime. So there's always been at least some of an animation industry in Japan. And uh, like in the very early birth of animation era, there were animators doing similar things to what was going on in Europe and the U.S. But animation really did not take off in Japan in a big way, at least with their kind of homegrown style, until well after World War II, uh, it was really around the 50s and 60s that it uh, became a little more popular and developed its own identity. And some of the things that kind of consistently have set Japanese animation apart uh, are a few things. One, anime has always been more auteur-driven than American animation, which tends to be studio-driven. Uh, obviously not a hard and fast rule on, on either the U.S. or the Japan but you typically have in Japan like more strong guiding voices who get attributed to a work rather than you know a studio style. Like we know what a Looney Tunes is, and to some extent we know what a Chuck Jones animation style is. But in general, when you talk about eras of animation and, and phases of American animation and golden eras, it's more about studios than it is about individual animators. Whereas in Japan. I think there's some of that, but you also hear a lot more about the specific animators and directors that, that led things. Obviously, Miyazaki being the most famous, and then uh, Takahata, who's actually the director of Anne of Green Gables, is probably second behind him. Again, maybe there are others. I, I'm not, it's not my area of expertise. But it was around this time in the 50s and 60s, kind of the couple decades post-war, that we really started to see like uh, anime tropes and stereotypes start to develop and like a the distinct visual style that we all think of as like the quote-unquote anime girl 
the big eyes and like the elaborate fashion. Very often you have girl protagonists, often have magic powers. There's very often robots involved. Not always, but there's a lot of robots in, in Japanese animation. All, all that comes from the 50s and the 60s. And the first wave of stuff to get exported was really a little bit later than that. It was in the 60s and 70s. And that was actually more TV stuff. So, um, you know, the money was starting to move towards TV, which obviously in TV, you care a lot more about getting the stuff out there, producing a lot of content. So I think in general, the emphasis went on like simpler and cheaper styles. So like if you've ever seen old Speed Racer, where the animation itself isn't all that elaborate, but it gets like a lot of mileage out of a specific background or a specific cell just kind of dragged across the screen. Have you ever seen any of those like 60s, 70s, 80s anime TV shows, Brian? Only like short clips and I've seen parodies specifically of Speed Racer. Yeah. Yeah, limited character animation, but then also at least what I saw in the parody was that like whenever his mouth does move, they felt the need to dub it with something. So he's making like a lot of extra sounds like, ah, whoo. It's a little bit like the Godzilla we talked about now ages ago, but how there was a, an American dub of that. And it's kind of where you have the stereotypical mouth moves a lot, but only a few words come out. Right. But in this era, you did have some some works coming out that were well-regarded and remain well-regarded. Some really high production value TV shows. Um, some of those were in a influential series called the World Masterpiece Theater Series, which basically once a year, I think it was once a year, maybe it was more often than that, took some novel from throughout the world, so not necessarily a Japanese novel, and turned it into a TV series that ran from anywhere from 25 to 55 episodes. And sometimes they were really faithful and sometimes they were less faithful. That's actually where the show we're going to talk about today, Anne of Green Gables, comes from. It ran for 50 episodes and was extremely faithful to the novel. But in the 80s, the production shifted back towards film. And in 84, you had uh, Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind. Nausicaa, Nausicaa, I don't know how you say it. I actually haven't seen that one, but that was directed by, by Miyazaki, and it was actually produced by Takahata. So one thing is these animators would often work together. Typically, like the director, I think, did the script and also the character animation, whereas you might have a background director who was like in charge of the background paintings and, and art. And then sometimes you'd have a producer that kind of did the behind the scenes stuff to keep things rolling. And it's kind of interesting. You kind of think of those as distinct positions in American animation. And that's probably true there. But you would often see people like swap in for those different roles. Like they would direct in one and they would do background direction on the next. And then they produce on the next one. So uh, Nausicaa was directed by Miyazaki, but produced by Takahata. And that was a really big hit and inspired Miyazaki along with a couple of other producers in Takahata to create Studio Ghibli, which is probably the most famous Japanese animation studio, has been releasing now for, man, pushing 40 years, 35 plus years, uh, very well regarded animated feature films with Miyazaki and Takahata in particular, 
producing a whole bunch of them. Some people are under the mistaken impression that it's only Miyazaki films that come out of Ghibli. He does have more than any other director, but there have been several directors who have produced films for that studio, including several by Takahata, who actually passed away, I think, I'm going to look it up, it was in the 2010s. Which Studio Ghibli films have you watched? Uh, Takahata passed away in 2018, by the way. So I've seen about six or seven of them, and... Uh, definitely seen My Neighbor Totoro, Spirited Away, Howl's Moving Castle. I watched about half of The Borrowers one. I never got around to finishing it. And then, let's see. Oh, uh, I watched Kiki's Delivery Service, which I have a soft spot for. What about you? For me, I think it's just Totoro, Spirited Away. I might have watched Ponyo. Oh, I've seen Ponyo too, yep. I also saw Princess Mononoke. Oh, another one I've seen, yeah. So I haven't seen all of them. Uh, I'm not a completionist, but I have liked quite a bit the ones I've seen. It's definitely different from American animation. It's like not so much your typical three-act narrative structure typically, but the kind of American breakthrough when anime really came into the American public consciousness was in 1988 when Akira was dubbed and released in the U.S., and it was a, a pretty big hit. Um, it actually flopped in Japan, but it, it uh, was popular in international markets, including the U.S., and that kind of opened the floodgates for, for international anime. And that's right around when we hit 1990, which is the cutoff point. So I don't really have much to say beyond 1990. Obviously, it's been a very fertile time period since then for, for anime and for manga, but yeah, it's an industry I'd, and film tradition that I would, at some point, I'll hop more into. I know a lot of people have a lot of strong feelings about it, mostly positive, but never been something that's particularly pulled me. So, but yeah, uh, what do you? What's your anime experience, Brian? Or any anime thoughts? Have you seen much beyond Ghibli? Sure, I, I haven't been too steeped in it, but I've checked out a couple shows at people's recommendation. The big one that I will always plug is Death Note. And I'm sure for people who are like into anime, that's like the most normie answer, the most mainstream choice that I could make. But I really do think that one's very, very good and would recommend it to people who have not seen anime. It's like Breaking Bad with a Grim Reaper in it. It's pretty funny how how many things connect back to Breaking Bad for you. I know. It's like inevitable. It's like the hallmark. If it's good TV, it probably has something to do with with Breaking Bad. (laughs) But by that, in this case, I mean it's about somebody committing crimes who has a close familial relationship with the law enforcement agents tracking them. And, like, the, the cops don't know that the person they're after is under their nose. And so there's a lot of dramatic irony milked from that. Have you ever seen, um the non-animated American TV show called The Americans. No, haven't seen that one. That's the Cold War set drama, yeah. right? And the, the gimmick is there's a family where both parents are Russian spies and they're like very deep in their American lives too. And it just so happens that their neighbors, the husband is a high up official in the CIA whose job is to hunt Russian spies. 
So I think it has a lot of similar dynamic to what you're describing. Well, there you go. I find that tends to make pretty good TV. It's the same thing in Dexter, where he's a forensic investigator, but he's also a serial killer. Mm, yeah. And so like his all his coworkers are like looking for him and don't know it. If you like that stuff, I definitely recommend The Americans. Like I, I wouldn't put it in the top ten TV shows of all time, but probably my top twenty-five TV shows. Or it's it's a good one. What channel was that on? I th God, I don't remember. I streamed it with my wife. I think. Was it AMC also? I think AMC. I'm going to look it up real quick. Oh, FX. That, that was on the tip of my tongue. I almost said it. Oh. So it was on okay, FX. Cool. But yeah, so I, I did have, I, I knew that I was only going to get two picks. And once I learned you were definitely not going to pick a Japanese film, Brian, I knew it. one of my two picks was going to be anime. So I thought a lot about which one to pick. And some of the other ones I thought about, I mentioned last week, I thought quite a bit about choosing Akira. I ended up not going that way. I thought about choosing Nausicaa which was the, the breakthrough hit by Miyazaki and inspired Ghibli. Thought about Castle in the Sky from 1986, which was the first Ghibli film. One that would have been fun that I didn't do is, so the, the second and third Ghibli films were actually My Neighbor Totoro and Grave of the Fireflies, which is like the most gentle, whimsical fantasy story. And then I haven't seen Grave of the Fireflies, but I know that it's like a really macabre, a lot of death and darkness and brutal brutality. That one's actually another Takahata, but those were released as a double feature. So you went to the theater and you saw both of them. <laughs> Man, I didn't realize when you have in your notes that they came out the same year and it was a pairing. I didn't realize literally shown together. I know it's wild. That's funny. Just couldn't be more different and like probably traumatizing. I don't know what order it aired it in, but I can imagine watching Totoro being in such a sweet, gentle mood, and then you watch Grave of the Fireflies, which I think has, like, starvation and children dying and stuff. Just brutal. Um, that I thought about doing that, like, recreating that double feature. <laughs> Man, we might have to do that on our own time. Yeah, I hope you don't mind too much that I bogarted the animation month. That seems like a topic you would assign. But to be fair, I've been pushing for it for a while. And Oh, no, no, I don't mind at all. But uh... I'm glad we could... Uh get to discussing it and there's no reason we can't toss on more animated features in the future right a couple other potential picks would have been kiki's delivery service which as i mentioned i have a really big soft spot for i think it's like a terrific example of coming of age in a sort of meandering way but is like very inspiring and like i want my daughters to go watch this and like take lessons from how to come of age with kindness and strength and just a very nice story Tale of the White Serpent came out in 1958, and it was the first anime color film. And I found a list of the greatest animes of all time by some publication, and I probably shouldn't even bring it up if I don't have the publication, but I don't have it in front of me. And it had this one at number one, I think probably in part because of its influence. It's kind of like a parallel to Snow White. It kind of birthed the modern industry. But that was another candidate, 1958. And then the last one I thought about is uh, Angel's Egg, which came out in 1985, which is an experimental anime that remains pretty divisive, which is known for like weird imagery and vibes and energy, which I thought was really interesting. And a lot of the forums and people I talked to have it like ranked as one of their favorite anime features. So I thought that would have been fun. So all things we could check out on our own time, as you said, or maybe future episodes. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, 
if I were to expand the criteria for our month a little bit, and if we continued on down this animation route, one film I might assign that is an anime film is called Paprika from 2006. Are you familiar with this one at all? I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. It's really weird. The animation is just totally bonkers insane. But the premise is like, when we dream, we have like alternate selves whose reality is just as consequential as ours. And like going to sleep, you like phase shift into the other reality. And so the the main character is conscious of both selves, basically. And so the story's kind of unfolding in the real world and the dream world, and then one starts to bleed through into the other. And so it's, in some ways, it's Inception-y, but then also there's just totally wild anime animation. Right, yeah. There's, like, people transforming into cell phones, and there's this parade of living objects that starts marching through the city as the dream world bleeds through and just crazier and crazier things start joining the parade <laughs> that's funny yeah um i think that was done by satoshi khan who is another well-regarded animator um and if we had expanded it out to the future like you said he also did perfect blue which i have heard described as the anime mulholland drive by which i mean like a sort of weird and trippy and freaky film that's a dark mirror to the entertainment industry that I have always been intrigued by, but just have never caught up with. Um, yeah, lots of good stuff. Um, let's dive into today's feature. So uh, just a little bit more about Isao Takahata, who is the director of this film and the, the TV show that it came from. He actually oversaw the edit as well, so um, he was responsible for that too. But by the edit, I mean into feature length. So he, by his own admission, was far more influenced by like European art films than Disney and the Hollywood studio system. And I think you really see that carried over. It's like slower paced and more naturalistic and just a little more kind of thoughtful or something. I don't know. I, I haven't seen enough of his works to really like draw the threads together on like what his fingerprints are. But... That's by reputation what he's known for. Uh, he also is a strong advocate and user of like innovative and challenging to create multi-plane animation, which simulates 3D space and like the perception of depth, but still just being all hand-drawn animation. And I think there's definitely some of that in Anne of Green Gables. I don't know if you picked up on that at all. I did. There's a lot of characters moving through space and moving through the depth axis. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a lot of turning, interesting perspectives. It's not flat. Right. Like, the characters are a little more simplistic than their surroundings, but they do move dynamically. They're not fixed in one place. Yeah. But the environments are really remarkable. Oh, definitely. Like, really beautiful backgrounds, and yeah, it does that multiplane, like, 1940 Pinocchio thing where everything is, like, parallaxing. Right. It really struck me when they're riding in a carriage and you see, like, the carriage move 
And it particularly what like you hear the horse clopping and you see it like gently going up and down as the horse moves that that being the characters that you're kind of seeing. And then you also see the background, which is like very slowly scrolling. So it really does look like a camera is sitting right in front of these two people on a carriage, you know, like they're going through space, like you said. And this feature film was composed of six episodes of the TV show. Mm -hmm. I think two full episodes of those six, they're riding in the carriage. Uh, Yeah. So one whole episode is them riding from the train station to the house, and then they go back the other way, and that takes a whole episode. Right. So Takahata, when he was assigned Anne of Green Gables for the World Masterpiece Theater series, he actually went out to Canada, Prince Edward Island, as you said, and um, spent a lot of time like in nature observing it and uh, doing some drawings of it and such, uh, which really inspired him to like try and capture what it's actually like. And I think you do get some of that specificity in the nature there for sure. Oh, definitely. It feels determined not to leave anything out. Yeah. And the the show, which again, I've gotten about... A quarter between a quarter and of the and a third of the way through, and would definitely like to finish someday. It's really faithful to the book, at least as I understand it, because I've read abridged versions to my kids multiple times, including some that were like not all that abridged, like fifty plus pages. So still chapter books, and you get a lot of the episodes like in really intense detail in the show. It's very novelistic. It's not cartoony um or like particularly episodic at all and i guess we didn't talk about it too much but the book covers like a sizable chunk of Anne's life right that's right yeah the book goes from age 11 through 16 although there was a whole series written by lucy maud montgomery i think nine books total and it followed her the rest of her life and her children as well so that's what Lucy Maud Montgomery was doing for the rest of her life after that hit was uh, writing more of those books. Wow. I read that the animator who did the 2001 TV show was named Kevin Sullivan, and he also did adaptations of other Montgomery stories. And the Anne show, which was one of his later projects, I guess, incorporates characters from the different adaptations he'd done. So it was like a green gables cinematic universe going on oh interesting wow there was a prequel series eventually but i don't think takahata directed it and i I don't know how involved he was but it was on something like the 30th anniversary of the show they did a another season of the the world masterpiece theater and i don't know if it was sourced from one of the novels or just invented but it was like a prequel to this so i don't know but and that was called Hello, Anne, before Green Gables. So let's hop into it. Anne of Green Gables, 1979. I'm going to cover the feature film edit with this, so I'll kind of treat it as a movie, even though that's it's complicated. Just to be clear, I watched it in TV episode chunks. I didn't want to leave out that anime opening. Yeah. Got to watch it every time. And you get the, the pre-cap... And the recap at the end. Oh, right. There's always, uh, I've noticed this in a lot of anime shows, that they do the 
next time on right yeah the preview and you get a little snippet of what the next episode is going to be which is pretty uncommon in in western shows the often you'll see the last time on but only on arrested development do they have the <laughs> on next week's arrested development or next time on arrested development that's interesting yeah game of thrones did that too if you got to the end of the credits they would say and next week here's a preview and it would show you like a, a two minute thing, which I guess is a little different. That's true. I guess that's fairly common. But it, it, this way just feels more intact. Yeah, like ingrained into the episode. Part of it, yeah. So this takes place in late 19th century. So about a decade before the novel was actually written in Avonlea, which is a fictional town, but on the real and picturesque Prince Edward Island, which is in Canada. I think it takes place in the spring. We see a lot of blossoms. And there are two older siblings, so a brother and a sister in their 50s or 60s. I don't know if their ages are specifically given in the book. They're definitely not in the show. And they live together and maintain a farm called Green Gables. And those two siblings are Matthew and Marilla Cuthbert. And Matthew is a, a quiet and sensible, but we'll see he's also kind of got a, a soft streak, whereas Marilla is kind of on the more practical side, and she has a little bit of more severity to her. Yeah, Marilla definitely seems to have the power. Matthew is very soft-spoken and withdrawn. Yeah, and some of the adaptations I've read, or, or, or um, you know, kids' book versions that I've read, I didn't know that they weren't married until until like later in the book. I was like, what is this weird dynamic? And then it finally clicked that they were brother and sister, which I either missed at the beginning or wasn't very explicitly outlined. Yeah, I mean, it's a weird arrangement. I thought from the TV show, which again, I watched out of order. I think she calls... Marilla is definitely very present, and I think she calls her Aunt Marilla. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, which is something in the anime she brought up. She's like, can I call you Aunt Marilla? And she says, don't call me Aunt. I'm not your aunt. <laughs> yeah. But because they're getting older, they write to an orphanage basically requesting that they can adopt a boy to help around the farm. You know, they're getting older, losing their stamina, losing their strength. So the orphanage gets the request, but in apparent confusion, sends them a girl rather than a boy. So they, they send Anne Shirley, that is the title Anne, Anne with an E, uh, who is a precocious 11-year-old red-haired girl. And she's very chatty. She doesn't have much of a filter. Definitely the word precocious uh, is one that you hear used frequently to describe personalities similar to what we see Anne having here. Very creative, too. Yeah, she has a vibrant fantasy life because she's lived at least part of her life in an orphanage. She's been shuffled from living situation to living situation. And so basically she's a large personality who's been kept in a small and unfree world. So she finds adventures in her mind. Right. And she's not afraid to share that either. So again, this movie, it goes like, sentence by sentence with what's in the novel. It does not cut corners. We see Matthew getting in the carriage, riding out to meet what he thinks is the boy. He gets there. He's confused because there's no boy. There's just a girl sitting on the bench. And then she introduces herself and he kind of realizes the confusion that's happened, 
but he's surprised and rather than basically share with Anne the situation, just brings her home because there's not really any other option for what he's going to do. And yeah, so we get like a solid 20 plus minutes of them talking in the car ride and we get, oh, I don't think this is where we get her backstory. I think it's the second carriage ride, but she talks about her life and her personality and her worldview and all this imagined stuff and gives names for things and just has opinions about everything, like her hair color and I don't know. It's it's very amusing and very feels authentic to me for someone who has two precocious daughters as well. It's like there's always something running through their head that you never could have come up with. And it's like this entirely different view of the world. I found it pretty charming, even though it's just a, a girl talking as they ride on a carriage. But it's such a beautiful ride with all these lovely backgrounds and stuff. I agree. I liked the vocal performance. I'm a little curious to hear a bit of the dub. Mm -hmm. And I found her very empathetic just to know that she has such vibrance and such a willingness to live a grand life. And yet to this point has been denied that like has really not had a good situation. Right. And in spite of all of that has thrived. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it is endearing. And Matthew thinks so as well. And we see him warm up to her almost immediately and, you know, he keeps up the pretense that she was who they wanted to adopt the whole ride home. But as soon as they get home, Marilla is shocked to see that it's a girl and basically is like, well, why did you not leave her there? We don't want a girl. We want a boy. And Anne is really distraught by this, like, understandably. She talks about how she knew it was too good to be true. And she breaks down and she yells at Marilla, who, like, clearly was expecting someone a little more submissive when she saw the girl. But um, she softens up as well and, and agrees to let Anne stay for the night. And the next day, they'll sort it out. So we get to see their whole dinner routine and bedtime routine and the, the sun setting on the farm. Just like I, I'm not going to keep saying it. Always so lovely to, to see the animation and kind of a traditional anime trait, or at least I would say Japanese film in general trait. Uh, is you get a lot of just shots of the environment and the setting, a lot of scene setting, even if it's not like of our characters or anything, just to really give us a sense of the place. Right. Yeah. Some of the places that we see, there's a pond that Anne calls the Lake of Shining Waters because she always envisions things as, as very big and beautiful. But, I mean, it seems like genuinely pretty nice. Anyway, the animation here is exquisite. And also, they pass through this lane of, I think it's cherry trees. But just a lot of time is spent with these beautiful flowers on the trees. What does she call it? Like the White Way of Wonder or something like that. She immediately has a name for it. And there's like a, there's a funny bit where she asks Matthew, what, what's this place called? And he says, I forget the name of the person, but it's just their street. And it's like very plain, but she has this whole name for it and immediately is like coming up with mythology about what happens here. Again, very much rang true for me to, for what at least my five-year-old does. Another thing is that she can like hear the forest talking to her. What this reminded me of, and probably it's 
that I've got it backwards, like these things. Is it Breaking Bad? Oh, no. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> there was very little of Breaking Bad in this TV series, which is why I was surprised that I actually found myself liking it. But, no, what it reminded me of was uh, Pepper Ann. Did you ever see that show? No, what's that? Okay, well, it was a Disney show when I was in, like, sixth grade. And it was Girl Doug was how I would describe it. Hmm, interesting. It was like, it was trying to recreate Doug, but then Disney bought Doug. And so then that was in the Disney clutches too. Uh, but anyway, both of those shows, Pepper Ann and Doug, have got like a middle schooler protagonist who is always daydreaming. Right. And like has a whole supporting cast of daydreamed characters. And like whenever they look in a mirror or a puddle or something, one of these alter egos will show up. So there's some of that. And she, like, sees wood sprites, and this is uh, Anne now that we're talking about. Yeah, it struck me. I had seen these episodes before, but seeing it in a feature film, you know, hour and a half straight through, it struck me that some of the idealism and beauty in the animation, I think, is meant to be from Anne's perspective. It's like she's seeing this world with wonder the way that we see it to some extent. And you get that with the sprites and with some of the elaborate stuff, like when it goes through that wooded patch on the, the wagon ride or the carriage ride, it like has this almost impressionistic sequence of the flower petals forming like this lovely tapestry that she kind of imagines herself flying in. Really interesting. But that night after Anne goes to bed, Marilla and Matthew are debating how to proceed and Marilla, of course, very practical, is like, well, we'll just bring her back to the orphanage and sort it out. And Matthew confesses that he's got a soft spot and wonders maybe she could stay and maybe we have some duty to do something for her rather than thinking about how she can do something for us, which I found very touching. I, I like good movie dads. He's not exactly a dad, but it, it, it fits the bill. Yeah, we get a good, interesting dynamic between the three of them because, like, Matthew is very repressed but I think would like to have a more open, wider experience of the world. Whereas Marilla is kind of domineering and is just fine with her perfect little organized cardboard box, all enclosed world. Right. Like that everything is proper here and that's how it's going to stay. And that's enough for us. And then you've got manic pixie dream girl, of Green Gables here, who's just come in to mix everything up. There's one line I, I like in the dub, and I, I couldn't tell if the dub was translated from the script or whether they actually sourced it from the novel and put in the direct quotes. I'm guessing they translated it from the Japanese script, which means that it, it might not exactly match what's in the novel, what you hear in the dub. But this line from the dub I liked, which was, Matthew Cuthbert, somehow this oddity of a girl has managed to bewitch you. And delivered pretty well in the dub. But we see Anne wake up the next morning, and she is absolutely smitten with the beauty of the farm at, at sunrise. And she does some guilt-tripping of Marilla. It's not clear exactly how intentional it is, but she's talking about, oh, I would just love to live here forever. I would cherish all these things, but I know I can't, so I will just cherish it for today. And you can just see on Marilla's face how like she's starting to feel really bad about sending her back to the orphanage. But she's sticking to the plan because that's what Marilla does. And they do indeed hop in the carriage, head back to the orphanage. And as they're going back, this is where we get 
Anne's life story in flashback, I think, and see how she hopped from orphanage to orphanage and has had a pretty rough life thus far. And this is kind of when Marilla really starts to soften up to her even more. But then they get to the orphanage, which I suppose in the structure of the film is kind of the climax of the film. But obviously it wasn't designed that way. It was designed to be episode five of 50. But here at the orphanage, she's talking to the orphanage runner, sorting out the details and how, well, maybe Anne should stay back at the orphanage. And it's clear that Marilla's having a little bit of reticence, having a little bit of hesitation on all this. When who should come up but another woman? So this is a a strict and mean older woman named Mrs. Blewett. And she offers to adopt Anne if she's returned. But she's like saying, oh, you will speak when spoken to and do exactly what I tell you. And just very clearly bad news for Anne. Yeah, she looks like the Wicked Witch at the start of Wizard of Oz when she's a normal human. Oh, that's a good call. Yeah, she's maybe the most cartoonish character design. They're very natural character designs in general, but definitely some hook-nosed ugliness that, yeah, I think is kind of witch-like, like you said. In the dialogue, I think you've written down here that in the dub, they say that she looks like a rusty screwdriver. That's right, yeah. There's an exchange where Anne says, she looks like a rusty old screwdriver. And it does a cutaway to imagining her shaped like a screwdriver, uh, Mrs. Blewett, that is, in, in Anne's imagination. In the subtitles, it says, she looks like a gimlet. And so I had to look up, what the hell is a gimlet? <laughs> and it said, like, something to do with a screw. Okay. Well, one is it's a cocktail. Yeah, I, I like gimlets. So I had to scroll had to scroll down past that. And then it's like, uh, it was like a pointed auger used for drilling. And I was trying to understand, but I didn't understand. I thought it was some kind of goblin when she first said it. Oh, interesting. That's what she looks like to me. You know, you got gremlins and you got goblins and you got gimlets. There you go. Yeah. But Marilla, she clearly is now having even more reservations because it's obvious that Anne would rather not stay with Mrs. Blewett and says, well, we're, I'm going to bring her back home and we're going to think about it. And we'll let you know, Mrs. Blewett, if we decide not to keep her and you can come pick her up or, or something along those lines. And so they start riding home and cut away to Matthew and I really love this little snippet of Matthew. Again, it was giving me good movie dad vibes, but like he kept eagerly looking up at the road to see if the carriage had come, hoping against all hope. I think that's the line that uh, is used in the dub, hoping against hope that when the carriage returns, that Anne will still be on it. And sure enough, he's delighted when it gets back and, and Anne is still there, because I think at that point, Matthew has realized that maybe Marilla has finally been won over. And they debated again that night, and Marilla agrees. Actually, I don't even think they debated. I think she says it before Anne goes to bed that they're going to keep Anne, and Matthew's excited about that, but they decide not to tell Anne until the next morning. So Anne is, like, very tense. And at last, Marilla tells her that, that she will be staying at Green Gables, which brings Anne to joyful tears. And she tries to describe the experience of joyful tears, which Marilla doesn't really understand. And Matthew says... Yes, now you are Anne of Green Gables. They said the thing. They did it. And that's where the movie ends. Oh, by the way, when Matthew's bringing her to the house from the train station for the first time, we get the whole scenic drive there. 
and they're pulling into the little neighborhood. Anne said, Wait, don't tell me which house it is. I, I can feel it. I know. And she points to the house and Matthew says, How did you know? It's like, well, it's called Green Gables. <laughs> it's got a green roof. Good guess. Yeah, how did she know? Although there is a line, well, surely they must have told you what it, exactly what it looked like at the orphanage. And she said, no, I just felt it. Like, yeah, and saw the green gables on the roof. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Way to go, Anne. Amazing. <laughs> Truly a brilliant child. <laughs> but yeah, that's how the movie ends. So, you know, just a very delicate, gentle six episodes condensed down into about 95 minutes. And I have watched about five or six more episodes and I, I just clicked through, I scrubbed through a little bit. I wanted to see, do they age up the drawings, the, the character designs as she gets older? Like, do they age her the same way? And they definitely do. It's like, if you pull up any of the later episodes, she's definitely been redrawn as like a, a full on teenager as opposed to a tween. Cool. Yeah, it left me wanting to see more to know what happens next. It reminded me of the, the OC. Have you ever seen the OC, Brian? I have not seen the OC. So I think it's the first three or maybe it's the first five episodes or something. And um, it deals with a lawyer from a wealthy family who is a public defender and advocate. I think he's a public defender. Basically, he's like a nice guy lawyer. And he's played by Peter Gallagher, who has really thick eyebrows. And he basically takes in this troubled kid his name is Ryan in the OC. And the first few episodes basically deals with him trying to get Ryan's mom back in the picture and support to re to take Ryan back in. And Ryan's like 15 or 16 at this point. And it, whatever episode it is ends with basically the mom running off again and Peter Gallagher saying, well, I guess we're going to adopt you. And it kind of launches the story proper. And I feel the same way here. Like this is like the, the preamble story that launches the story proper. And, it sets in place how this kid came to live in this world. Right. It rem it reminds me of when I was very young, I had this VHS that was a compilation of the first five episodes of Gargoyles into feature length and just set the stage for what the series would be. Mm. And it came with a VHS board game, which I'm kind of disappointed we don't have, like, Journey to Green Gables, the VHS board game that we can now play, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i would definitely uh experience that that board game what does that even mean a vhs board game okay so i think next april fools i'll probably assign a vhs board game okay but there's so there's like clips on the tape and then a lot of the runtime is like a clock like just filler where you're playing the game and so that aspect of it is randomized, like what's happening on the board game, but then at a certain time during gameplay, something comes up on the tape. And I think it's due for a little more analysis because I can't explain it great off the bat. I know that there were a few of these things. There was like a series called Nightmare that was all horror VHS board games. I have an Isaac Asimov VHS board game and a Star Trek VHS board game. Is there a community episode about them? There was. And the host of the VHS board game is played by Vince Gilligan, executive producer of Breaking Bad. Oh, Breaking Bad. <laughs> 
It always comes back. <laughs> That's funny. So, Brian, what were some good things that we might not have touched on or that you want to emphasize again about Anne of Green Gables? I really dug the animation, especially of the environments. But the characters, the way they moved grew on me. They're not too static. They really do seem to inhabit their world. I wasn't sold on the Anne character design to begin with. She has a really huge forehead. I know, yeah. So before I watched it, I was just seeing stills. It's like, this looks kind of wonky. It's not too bad during the show. There are definitely some perspectives where it's like, she's got just an enormous head. But most of the time, it's fine. And it's almost like a mullet design. It's like the the front of her hair kind of sticks up, bangs like it's short. But then the back is a long braid. It does look a little odd. And it took me some adjusting as well. But it's well done. It ends up feeling fairly natural. Yeah. And the biggest thing I want to praise is the resonant emotions. Like, this story doesn't move a mile a minute. There's a lot of pensiveness. But I was never bored. Like, I felt for these characters. I felt for Matthew when Anne is getting taken back to the train station and he's, like, just about to speak up to speak his mind for maybe the first time in his life and he holds back and then he's, he's like, pacing around fretting. And Anne's whole thing, very empathetic, too. I wanted to see her find a home. Yeah, I agree. Even Marilla, who's the most severe here ends up coming across as sympathetic and kind and big-hearted, ultimately. And I really do, I agree with what you said about how they each bring out interesting dynamics in the other and how you can always just see that starting to unfold in, like, an unforced, organic way, but that just is really rich. Yeah, so I like it. And there's a few really iconic, well, at least to me, iconic. I've seen them adapted in a lot of different forms well, I should say, read them, adapted in various forms and, and heard about them, uh, segments. Like one is she loses a brooch and then she, well, she gets blamed for losing a brooch, but she didn't actually lose it herself. But Marilla is convinced that she did. And eventually Anne confesses to doing it just to like get out of the constant nagging of, did you steal the brooch? You can't go to the party unless you confess that you stole the brooch. And finally she confesses, even though she didn't do it. And later Marilla finds it and says, why did you confess to doing it? And she's like, well, because you wouldn't let me do anything until I confessed to it, even though I didn't do it, which I always thought was a funny thing. There's a couple others. She dyes her hair and it goes badly and she ends up having to cut it off. She does keep talking about how she hates her red hair. Yeah. Well, and then there's like ends up being the boy Gilbert Blythe, I think his name is, who we don't see in these episodes, but I think he gets introduced within a few more episodes and uh, she meets him at school and he is basically her foil and ultimately romantic partner over the saga of Anne of Green Gables across nine novels or however many it is. Um, the, but they initially are like sworn enemies because he's like a, a prankster at school. And the thing that really sets her off is he calls her carrots, which she in particular is sensitive to the taunting nickname of her red hair carrots. I think red hair is generally like viewed as beautiful these days, but I guess in then it was not. Yeah, I, I think so too. 
but I mean, there is the meme of gingers don't have souls or there was circa like 2012 or whenever. But <laughs> so great. there's always been some othering. You know, the, there's the phrase redheaded stepchild. That's a good point. Like they're not authentically yours. They're other. Yeah. Were there any not so good things you wanted to call out, Brian? Not too much. Your mileage might vary with the pacing. Agreed. I wonder if the I wonder if the feature film trimmed it down a bit. It probably did because I was kind of surprised that each episode was like a full 25 minutes, whereas now, like a half hour show is like just over 22. Right. So if you do six times 25, that gets you to 150 minutes, and it came down to I think 95 minutes, and the large majority of that is the opening sequence, the recaps the credits, the closing theme song, which is all pretty extended, you know. But even still, I think there's a little bit trimmed. I think some of the voiceover is trimmed. Oh, yeah, there's um, some narration, especially in the first episode, a lot of narration. Right. It kind of makes sense because it's from a novel that was obviously had narration, and there's some things you just can't capture in the dialogue, particularly if you want it to be kind of faithful. But it didn't really pull me out. I didn't mind the narration. I, I will say, if you're thinking about it just from the perspective of the feature itself, it's incomplete. So there's like a sense that you want more. Like, you know, it's just an opening chapter. Yeah, they plant a lot of seeds. There's like mentions of characters that you figure are going to be more prominent. Like, I wish I had a best friend. Well, there is a best friend over there. You're not going to see her in these six episodes, but she's out there. We're going to name drop her like three or four times. Exactly, yeah. And she does become a prominent character. That's Diana. There's two consecutive episodes. It's like the 8th and the ninth, or the ninth and the 10th or something like that, where it's in one episode she meets Diana and then in the next episode is she plays with Diana. So like it keeps up this very, very relaxed pace, although it obviously does time jumps because it goes into the future. And that's one thing I'm really excited about with this series getting to the end is one interesting thing about Anne of Green Gables is it really does have a bittersweet conclusion to it. it it's not a happily ever after there's a couple of dark things that happen and i can really see this series pulling off that bittersweet element like you said the resonance of the emotions are already there and it really feels like it could pull off like there's i don't know if i want to spoil it but there's deaths of characters and like really complicated life decisions that need to be made as she gets a little bit older oh wow i definitely want to watch some more yeah and even just within this block there was this scene where she describes that at one of the houses she lived at go growing up, she had to like take care of like eight kids. And her only friend was herself in the mirror who she would talk to. And she had a dream that she would one day be able to open up the mirror and walk through into mirror land and hang out with her mirror friend. And w when it, when she's talking about this, it shows the fantasy unfolding and she goes through into the mirror world and it played this like really creepy music. And I was like, I kind of want to see what else these TV producers, these filmmakers, what they've done. Right. Because this is kind of getting a little experimental, whereas up to now it's been, you know, 85% very rooted in pastoral reality. That's right. Yeah, I agree. All right. I am ready to rate Anne of Green Gables. What about you, Brian? Any other thoughts you want to throw out there? I'm ready. All right. So, Is It Good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, 
up to our masterpiece rating, Tour de Good, an eight out of eight. So Brian, when I answer this question, I'm going to be doing so from the perspective of the feature. I will also give some thoughts on the the series as a whole. But is Anne of Green Gables, The Road to Green Gables, good? I thought it was very good. I'm going to give it a six out of eight, which we have termed very good. And it's like a high six. It's it's right on the verge of exceptionally good. And I'm going to watch some more of the show and maybe it'll get boosted even a little higher. But I found myself really drawn in and charmed. I wasn't super familiar with this story. I was glad to see it play out. Maybe they could have trimmed down the runtime a bit. So maybe the uh, movie version is worth checking out. But overall... I like these characters. I like this world and I want more of it. Nice. Yeah. What about you, Dan? First of all, just taking out from the equation, is it lazy or unnecessary to have a feature length cut of a TV show? Just I'm going to take it at face value and say that it's fine to do that if that's a, a easier way to consume it. And from that perspective, I'm going to give Anne of Green Gables, The Road to Green Gables, an exceptionally good. That is a seven out of eight. I, I was just completely won over by it for all the reasons we've talked about. It's just so enveloping. It just sucks you in. And you're in this world with these characters and their emotion and living their, their slow, gentle, relaxed, but still kind of emotionally complicated world with just this, this sense that you're out in, in the Canadian wilderness, uh, rural life. And I wanted to explore the town more and meet the characters and see what Anne's up to. Really love it. Only held back from a masterpiece rating for me just because it, it it's only the starting story. And, and to that point, you know, I haven't finished the Anne of Green Gables 1979 50-episode series, but it's on course from the, the 10 or 12 episodes I've seen. It is on course for a tour to good, an 8 out of 8, a masterpiece rating. And from what I've seen, that's what I would give it so far. I, I, I'm kind of blown away by how good it is and how... I don't know. I think of anime as being very narrative heavy and twisty, um, just a lot of plot and lore. And this is just so, so simple and engaging and pastoral. And I just love watching it and, and its slow pace and, and how inviting it is and beautiful, just absolutely lovely animation. That's where I am on seven out of eight, exceptionally good for the feature and a preemptive Toward a good 8 out of 8 for the, the entire TV show. Yeah, it brings a lot to the table. I said I was never bored. I was also never lost. It's not confusing. I recommend it. Yeah. And maybe it gets a boost if we revisit in a spectacular, which is coming pretty soon because I don't know if you said, Dan, but this was episode 98. What? One zero zero three digits. It's on the horizon. It's there. It's very close. And I'm glad that it's shaken out, Dan, that you get to do episode 100 when I got to do episode 50. I think it'll be nice. Yeah. couple of closing Anne of Green Gables thoughts here. Um, so one is this this anime does show up on best ever lists, if you ever look those up, which I have a couple of times. Uh, not consistently. They tend to be slightly more modern skewed. But one I saw, the one that had that that film from the 60s or 50s or whatever it was at number one, also had Anne of Green Gables in the top 10, I think. And then also had uh, the show that Takahata did right before it, which was based on Heidi, 
the book Heidi. It's the show is called Heidi of the Alps, I think. Also in the top 10 for, for greatest anime works. But the other interesting thing is I mentioned that Katie's book club has a lot of fans with an E. They are also how I heard about another adaptation that actually just came out. It was either it's in the last few years. And I think it was Netflix and it was like a gritty Anne of Green Gables called it's just called Anne with an E. And it's like, I don't know if gritty is the right word, but like it deals with adult themes. And I think they aged up Anne. Okay, so it's like it's like Riverdale or something. I can picture that. I could picture CW Anne of Green Gables. I don't think it's quite as MTV as uh, or as Riverdale is. Not quite so dramatic, but it's definitely like aged up and brings in dark themes in it. Uh, like, I don't know exactly what I imagine sex stuff, but who knows? I could also imagine like a Twin Peaks Anne of Green Gables. Oh, okay. Like, what's this weird town? Right. All the creepy stuff going on. Oh, man, I kind of like that. Man, what would that be like? Avonlea with like uh, a lady who talks to a log and a creepy uh, introduction theme song and a murder mystery. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, so I'm curious enough that I might at some point check out Anne with an E, but I'm higher priority to finish the anime, so. All right, so I'll probably... I think we got to call this episode Anecdotes. Oh, I was going to do Japan with an E, which I thought would, would have been clever, but I like Japan oh. Japanicdotes with a... That's like a, a, a homage. Yeah, I can't stack it too much, but it's it's going to be interesting. I think you got lots of choices. Yeah, so it'll be the last outing of Anna Month. So, Brian, what is episode 99 going to be? All right, so... One Anne of Green Gables quote that I see on Instagram and like plaques at Home Goods all the time is, I'm so glad I live in a world where there are Octobers. Now, we're not quite to October yet, but we're coming up on the last week of September, and I'm going to use it as an excuse both to end our Anna month and also kickstart our spooky season Halloween coverage, which typically fills October. By assigning a creepy animated feature, again, a fantasy movie from the 70s, so not getting out of my wheelhouse at all after my first two picks of the month, The Lord of the Rings and Wizards by Ralph Bakshi. That's because I am assigning the 1973 French-Czech animated collaboration called Fantastic Planet. I saw it on TV when I was nine years old, and I never forgot it. It's probably the weirdest animated movie I've ever watched. Do you know anything about this one? I know its reputation for weirdness, and that's about it. So I'm really excited to see this. I've been vibing with weirdness. Again, recently, I go in and out of vibing with weirdness. Right now, weirdness is in. What's the quote from Repo Man? I think it's everybody's into weirdness right now. Yeah, so uh, I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be a proper capper to Anna Month. And also, if I'm not mistaken, I'll probably bring this up next week. I'm going to go hit the, the tapes. But in our very first episode, when we were talking about the conception of the podcast, you said there are movies that I want to talk about that are just interesting, if not necessarily all time favorites. And you name dropped Fantastic Planet. So I'm glad it's, it's finally getting its payoff here. 
Right. It's worked its way to the front burner. It's honestly never too far from my mind, which I think is something we'll talk about next week. So <laughs> do join us again, listeners. Thanks for checking out our Anne of Green Gables coverage. I'm looking forward to Fantastic Planet, Brian. I'm looking forward to the conclusion of Anna Month. I'm looking forward to our upcoming 100th episode and whatever special things we come up with. And as always, I'm looking forward to talking with you, Brian. So thank you for, for joining me again. Listeners, thank you for joining us. And we'll see you next week. Bye, guys.